Welcome to today's episode of the Comical Heathen. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. This is my uh, satire podcast. On this podcast, I uh, interview comedians, writers, thinkers on satire and religious satire. And uh, excited today, really excited. My uh, interview guest in this episode is John Fuglesang. I'm a big John Fuglesang fan. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But let me get you uh, caught up on what's been going on. Uh, If this is your first time listening to the podcast, the deal is uh, I'm Jerry, and I am actually writing a book on religious satire. I teach acting at a college in Cleveland, and I also do stand-up myself. So when I started working on this book, I started interviewing the comedians around me. So there's like an academic side, but there's like a uh, view from the trenches, you know, reports from the front aspect to it. And when I started interviewing comedians and friends, you know, it turned into a podcast. It's kind of interesting. I wanted to share both my research, uh, my writing, and these interviews. So that's how we got to this place. A couple more things I'm working on that's related to this. Comical Heathen, you know, is a podcast, and I'm working on a book. And then in the mix, I've started doing a live show version of the Comical Heathen. Every episode has a rant of some kind, as well as the interview. Uh, We'll get to my rant in this episode later. But what I've done is I've gone through all the rants, I kind of called together my favorite bits and turned it into a structure, and I'm developing a live show. I started doing that last year, and I did a few shows in the Cleveland area where I am. I wanted to take out on the road. I started booking venues, festivals, and I did my first like out-of-town gig was in Columbus at the beginning of March. I had a nice audience. That was at Mad Lab. Thank you, Mad Lab. Please support uh, live local theater and entertainment. Anyway, that show went well, so it was like a energetic and fun kickoff. I learned a lot, things I can work on and improve. And anyway, a couple days after that show was when you might say the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit and basically all live entertainment was shut down. So, but it's what had to happen. So be it. But basically most of my bookings got either canceled or postponed. And you know, when it's appropriate to do so, I'll start rebooking it maybe in the fall or maybe in uh, next uh, year if necessary. And at at any rate, I do have one appearance still on the books, so I'm going to mention it right now. I've been accepted into the Kansas City Fringe Festival, which is in July. People who run that are, shall we say, monitoring the situation. And, you know, as of now, they have it still scheduled. It is a couple months away, so they both have time. You know, they have time to gather information, make further judgments. People who run it have been having, like, a conference calls and Zoom meetings with the artists keeping us updated on their thinking and their situation. So, uh, you know, they may the festival might go forward, might go forward in a modified way, smaller venues, smaller crowds, fewer days, uh, and it might be canceled. So for me, I guess that means if it gets canceled, it'll lower forward to next year. So uh, tentatively doing the Kansas City Fringe, the Comical Heathen Live show, probably this July, if not the next year. Watch my website and Facebook for updates about that and other live shows. And I have started one other little side project. It's not related to the Comical Heathen directly, but I want to give a shout out to some friends of mine, some comedians in the Cleveland, Northeast Ohio area have started their own parody news satire, news satire uh, website called The Trillion Dollar Dreadful. You know, it's online, it's free, it's humorous takes on politics and current events and, you know, the genre. A few of my friends started it, and they know I do the satire podcast and, and show, so they asked me if I wanted to contribute anything. So I am contributing a, a series of articles that are based on a parody religion that I've created. It's called The Church of the Invisible Product in the Sky, and it's like I play the part of the priest, and in these articles I'm telling you about the church. And, you know, it's a type of satire. I won't go into too much, but I will put links for the Trillion Dollar Dreadful in the description of this podcast if you're interested in that kind of humor writing. And I do put links in the podcast description. Uh, In the live show, uh, there's a line where I talk about this is something outrageous. And then I mention in like a self-reflective way that I have the only comedy show that comes with a bibliography. Uh, That's kind of uh, true. Uh, Hopefully funny, but it's definitely true. So every episode of The Comical Heathen comes with a bibliography. So you can follow up on things if you want. So that's the kind of stuff we have going on. Uh, One other thing to catch you up on, this podcast also does have mascots. Me and my wife keep two uh, lovely and cute Holland Lop Rabbits. 
They are called Newton and Kelvin. As my wife sometimes calls them, Sir Newton and Lord Kelvin. You can see we have a kind of um, proclivity for science in our household. That is certainly one of our interests. Kelvin and Newton are super cute. My Facebook page and website have, you know, many photos of them. You know, please check that out. And I always give the regular listeners some little update about what's been going on with my rabbits. So let's do that real quick. What I wanted to mention today is that my daughter uh, goes to graduate school. She has her own apartment. And she recently fulfilled a little dream of her own, which is to get a dog. Now, we never had any cats or dogs uh, with my kids when they were growing up. We had a kind of pet-free zone. Love animals. Um, but we just never had any pets around uh, when the kids were younger. So she always wanted a dog, and she got a dog. Really cute and beautiful Pekingese that she calls Eugene, and a super sweet and super friendly. And she brought Eugene over because she came and stayed for a couple days. So Eugene and Calvin and Newton had to meet each other. And you've probably seen videos online of when animals are like unlikely friends, and that definitely includes rabbits with other animals. I've seen videos of rabbits with dogs and cats and sheep. And, you know, it's cute. As a rabbit owner, I was certainly worried. I mean, rabbits are prey animals and dogs, even little cute Pekingese, all come from wolves, which are hunters. We just didn't know. On the other hand, as sort of mammals that live in families, they are used to bonding. So that's probably how that happens when it succeeds. So we wanted to be careful in introducing them. We keep our rabbits in a large pen in the living room and sometimes you open the pen and they run around the house a little bit but we kept the pen closed and so the Eugene and the rabbits couldn't get together until they got more used to each other which they did they liked to look at each other they would like smell each other through the uh, cage and they got seemed to get along just fine we haven't actually let them play together yet I think I'd like them to get to know each other better uh, before we tried that experiment so that's what's been going on with the rabbits we have a new grand puppy in our family and we're introducing um, rabbits and the dog to each other. I have a really cute photo of me holding a rabbit, uh, Newton, while my wife is holding Eugene and we stand near each other and the two animals are kind of staring at each other. It's pretty cute. I'm going to post that on Facebook after I post this episode of the podcast. So you can take a look at that if you're an animal lover. I want to see what's going on with the rabbits. But hey, one of the reasons the rabbits got brought up in the first place when I started this podcast is because there was like a uh, phenomenon that I noticed. We keep cages that the rabbits can nest in, and we usually keep the cages open. They can go in and out um, 99% of the time. But they like to go in there and they nest. They have litter boxes and they dig. and You know, that's the kind of stuff rabbits do. So we line their cages with old newspapers, which caused a really unexpected side effect, uh, which I call reading newspapers. Uh, I mean, I'm old enough to have been reading newspapers in the 70s and the 80s. In this millennium, newspaper, hard copy paper newspapers have kind of, you know, gone the way of the uh, buggy. We're putting the newspapers into the rabbit cages, and I started seeing the headlines. And then sometimes the headlines would pop out, and I'd be reading articles. I mean, how weird is that, reading hard copy newspapers? And so I've noticed that sometimes, you know, headlines can be kind of like a clickbait. You know, they're trying to get you to, to read the article. And I would notice headlines about a religion, pseudoscience, things of the, that sort of genre would stand out to me, especially if there was anything either outrageous or suspicious, or I really wanted to know more because it didn't sound right. So with that in mind, I would sort of spot or sense uh, misinformation, which I call misinformation because I consider uh, misinformation a sin. You know, I think uh, knowledge is what raises people up, and there can be a lot of misinformation around religion and pseudoscience. And so that would get me a little riled up, and then I would feel like I'd have to set the record straight or, or explore the implications further than the articles did. You know, it's just what I have to do. It's, it's, uh, it might be someone else's uh, dogma, but it's my karma. And, you know, I, spreading knowledge is spreading love, and that's what I'm here to do is to spread the love and spread the knowledge. And a headline did pop out at me recently. Uh, here, let me uh, read it to you. This is what I found at the bottom of the rabbit hutch today. This is a headline from Newsweek, actually. Mormon church stockpiled $100 billion intended for charities and misled LDS members, whistleblower says, by Paul Gladner. And this original article came out December 17, 2019. So what's going on? Some whistleblowers who were doing some accounting 
for the Mormon church, and these were Mormons as well, um, found that the church, so they claim, is gathering donations, which is telling their members that those donations are for charitable purposes, and then not spending that money on charitable purposes, instead uh, reinvesting it. Here's what Gladner says. Here's just a sentence from the article to give you a little more context. A whistleblower complaint filed at the IRS in November by a knowledgeable church member alleges that a nonprofit supporting organization controlled by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints used member tithes to amass more than $100 billion in a set of investment funds and the church misled members about uses of the money. It's a quote from the article. There's a lot going on there. It's pretty outrageous. You're telling me $100 billion with a B billion? That sounds like a lot of money to everyone except Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, or Scrooge McDuck. Here's some context. Microsoft, Google, and Apple, they each have over $100 billion in cash reserves. So that means the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints got as rich as the tech giants. And all without taking any work from the Pentagon. Hear that, Google? That's a rhetorical question. Google hears everything we say. All hail Facebook. And isn't that Zuckerberg guy handsome and such a snappy dresser? And they mentioned um, tithes. This is uh, donations, you know, religious donations, tithing. Some religious groups cast tithing as a requirement. The Mormon church asks, strongly suggests, demands perhaps that all members pay a tithe of 10%, even when struggling financially. I'm not even sure what 10% of flat broke looks like. I don't think multiplying by zero will get you much further than trying to divide by zero. You try to move that decimal place over two spots on flat broke, and you end up with an irrational number. Math jokes. That's the best, right, people? So they got that money tax-free. So Mormon leaders expect their members to tithe 10%, but your Uncle Sam can go fuck himself. It has been reported that the Mormon church collects about $7 billion in member contributions, and that about $6 billion of that is used for operational expenses. The other billion goes to an investment fund controlled by the Mormons called Ensign. $7 billion in member contributions. $7 billion! I could almost pay off my student loans with $7 billion. Almost. You know who has a billion dollars left after expenses? A mafia accountant who gets a piece of the action. Looks like they're fiddling with numbers like Nero. You know, that tithing contribution is tax-exempt in the U.S. Uh, if such, you know, income is used for religious, educational, or other charitable purposes. What about me? Huh? I, I'm being charitable every time my wife asks me, do these pants make me look fat? And I walk out of the room without answering. I'm being charitable every time I go to a children's quote-unquote talent show and clap at the end. Where's my tax breaks for that? Where's my tax break for this podcast? Here I am five minutes into a rant about the Mormon church, and I haven't even once made fun of their thing about magic underwear. I'd say that's plenty charitable of me. So the whistleblowers are contending that the church leaders are using this money for non-church and therefore non-tax-exempt businesses via Ensign, which is construed as a sort of shell company that does for-profit investing. It's being reported that $2 billion from Ensign was used to bail out church-run insurance companies and a shopping mall. Of course, shopping malls go under all the time. Their business model is two months of Christmas shopping and 10 months of teenagers selling pot. But you'd think at least an insurance company would know to have the foresight to take out, oh, I don't know, some sort of insurance, you know, in case of an act of God. Maybe God wanted that shopping mall to fail. Did they think about that? Maybe the world doesn't need yet another Panda Express and yet another food court across from yet another Build-A-Bear. The whistleblower is claiming that the ensign is underreporting to the IRS. And as it happens, it's such a secretive cohort, only four senior Ensign executives can see the company's full financials. Four 
I have more than four friends who say they've seen UFOs, and they don't even exist. I mean, the UFOs. I, I do have friends, the ones who, that haven't been abducted, you know, yet. I miss you guys, Donnie and Paco. Hope you guys were right about that magic underwear protecting you from probings. Oh, damn. There goes my charitable status. On the matter of the secrecy of these funds, former church president Gordon B. Hinckley is reported as having said, We simply think that information belongs to the contributors, not to the world. Hey, WWJD, what would Jesus disclose? And some of their billions is in real estate? Because you're not officially an asshole until you're a landlord. I mean, there's a swearing-in ceremony and everything. Do you swear to leech off the labor of the working class, overcharge people for something as basic as shelter, sit on your ass collecting rent checks, and when there's a pandemic, natural disaster, or other unforeseeable circumstances, causes the tenant to be late with a payment, bounce their ass to the curb like a Christmas tree in April. And remember, the poorer your tenants, the more sex you can get from them too. Hey, now we have more insight to why Mormons have been baptizing all those dead Jews and atheists. Hey, this makes it so much easier to pad out our dependent section of our W-2s. Wow, and three more wives. Great idea, Joseph. Cha-ching! When this story broke in December, early January, uh, there were a lot of articles and um, opinion pieces came out about it. I would say the assessment of the legal scholars, you know, they think it's... Uh, Unlikely the IRS would pursue a case because the IRS has been historically skittish about going after religious organizations. I'm looking in your general direction, Scientology. The theory is it's hard to prove what counts as a religion or a religious or theological point or excuse. And some Mormon leaders have leaned into this kind of defense with the excuses they are offering. For example, there's a, a, a report that uh, Ensign President Roger Clark said the amassed funds would be used in the event of the second coming of Christ. Oh boy, that is one hell of a rainy day to be saving for. Do you think when the Messiah returns he'll take Discover Card? The second coming of Christ is supposed to be after Armageddon. Do they think there will still be like banks and stock portfolios with zombies everywhere? I've got my money and brain futures. Brains. Another off-sighted excuse by uh, Mormon leadership, Matthew 25, 14. Right off the bat, I I've often said I couldn't think of a worse idea than using the Bible as a science textbook. But using the Bible as a principles of accounting textbook is a close second place. So the Bible says that Matthew said that Jesus talked about a master... And how's that for a game of telephone? In a story that is now referred to as the parable of the talents. And in this case, uh, uh, just to be clear, a talent was a unit of money. So we might as well call this the parable of the greenbacks. Before I go any further on that, let's just say, if you're going to cite the Bible as your reason for violating tax laws, you might as well cite die hard as your reason for shooting people. Uh, Your Honor, as previously decided in the case of John McClain versus Severus Snape, you know, that guy he threw out the window, yippee Your Honor, yippee Now, if you don't know the parable of the talents, I'm going to give you a brief summary. I'll put some links in the description of this podcast if you want to find out more about it. I'm going to just like summarize, paraphrase, condense, put it in my own words, but here we go. Here's the story. A master has three servants. The master's going on a long trip. So he gives each servant some money, but a different amount of money. And they're supposed to like take care of that money. So when he comes back, uh, much, much later, the first servant, who's the one he'd given the most money to, had done some trading and managed to double it. The master's like, well done, I'm putting you in charge. The second servant, he also did some stuff with his trading and stuff with his money, and he doubled it. And the master was like, whoa, good work. I'm putting you guys in charge too. Then there's a third servant. Hey, you see how he has set that up? It's like three guys walk into a bar. I'll bet Jesus would have crucified on open mic night. So anyway, the third servant, he'd been given the least amount of money, and he was scared that he might lose it or ruin it or something. So he just buried it in the ground for safekeeping. And when the master returned, he digged out and said, hey, here's your money back. And the master, like, 
throws bananas. He loses his shit. He's like, you're an asshole. I could have made interest if you'd put it in the bank. You just put it in a fucking hole in the ground. The master takes it and gives it to the first servant. That is essentially the parable of the greenbacks. Now, there's a lot of ways people interpret this parable. Some people think that this story means that God wants people to use their abilities, the gifts that God had given them. And these Mormon leaders are claiming the same thing, that they had a moral duty to use their God-given abilities, in this case, as tax cheats. Some people see the parable as a critique of capitalism, since, in effect, the master reaps the rewards of their servants, the same business model as slavery, prison labor, and fast food. (laughs) Fucking Panda Express. And also, let's point out that the very first line of the parable... Um, as it's written, it says, uh, like, it will be like a man going on a journey. Dude, it's a metaphor. You know, it's like a simile. You're not literally supposed to be raising gold to show your so-called faithfulness to Jesus. I suppose they're, you know, they'll take that parable literally, raise money, invest money, and to become wealthy off the tithing of their members, But it's okay to ignore the part when Jesus said, Oh, sell your possessions and give to the needy. You know, that's what the charitable donations were for, to help people. Oh, no. That was just a cute suggestion. Oh, that wacky Jesus. What a hippie. He doesn't want us to give to the poor. He wants us to hoard our hundred billion dollars. It's just as Jesus intended. Jesus' famous sermon wasn't on a mountain of cash. WWJD, what tax would Jesus dodge? So if you're feeling charitable and feel that I'm being charitable, feel free to hit the donate button for this podcast. I don't know if it counts as a deduction, but clearly the IRS doesn't either. And that's what I found at the bottom of the rabbit cage today. Today's interview guest was the great John Fugelsang, and I'm going to get to that in about one minute, but I'm going to take this spot Just to throw in a few extra thank yous, I want to make sure that get mentioned. With comedy shows and open mics, you know, shut down due to the coronavirus, I haven't been able to workshop my rants like I usually do. So I joined in on a couple of Zoom meetings with fellow comedians, and I want to thank a couple of them for their feedback, especially Dan Brown and Bill Baranke, two uh, hilarious comedians in the Cleveland area. They both have dry bar specials, so go check them out. And also, speaking of the coronavirus... It also comes up in my conversation with John. So let me just add the disclaimer that we are reacting to a cultural phenomenon and nothing that we say should be construed as medical advice. I mean, I am a doctor, but I'm not a doctor doctor. I'm a PhD doctor. I'm a doctor like Dr. Phil is a doctor. That is not a doctor. Also, this interview was uh, made possible by two of my best friends in comedy who introduced me to John. And they're bo- regular listeners of John's radio show, Tell Me Everything, might know them as they both appear on it sometimes. So thank you, Sean Lynch and Mark Riccadonna, for your help in making this interview possible. For what it's worth, if this is your first time listening to The Comical Heathen, both Mark and Sean appear in earlier episodes. So please take a look back at the catalog for other folks you might be interested in. John Fuglesang is a comedian who hosts Tell Me Everything that airs on Sirius XM Progress 127, from 9 p.m. to 12 midnight, Monday through Friday. He also performs uh, regularly, and he is included in the Sexy Liberal Comedy Tour, which comes up in the interview. He's also very active on Twitter. He's actually one of my all-time favorite uh, Twitter accounts to follow. I probably retweet John more than any other Twitterer that I follow. So check out his Twitter page. In this interview, some of the things that we discuss include the difference between satire and parody, Uh, John gives us his opinion of the Colbert Report. He also outlines some of the ways in which he thinks all fundamental conservative religious ideas are the same. And he also gives his take on when comedy is not comedy, but propaganda. Well, thank you for listening. And now, my interview with John Fugelsang. Well, this is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Welcome to The Comical Heathen. My guest today is John Fugelsang. Thank you, John, for coming on. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Uh, You're the host of the Sirius Radio program, Tell Me Everything. Yes, sir. 
I, I have to admit, uh, even though I listen to the show regularly, I always want to say, ask me anything. <laughs> oh, that, that'll do too. Tell me everything is, uh, it's actually an old Bob Dylan quote from an interview. Oh. Uh, they, they, they asked him once, uh, uh, what would be your advice for, uh, any woman on a date with you? And this was in the eighties okay. uh, for interview magazine. And he just said, tell me anything, uh, <laughs> tell me everything. And when we started the show, my wife was very, uh, adamant that my show not be all politics and then it'd be about everything. So sure. we, uh, we went with that title for it. It's a, <laughs> it's a very obscure Bob Dylan reference. Well, obscure Bob Dylan references is one of the things we love about John Fugel saying. Uh, <laughs> how did you uh, originally get into doing comedy? Oh, Lord. Well, I was an actor and uh, um, in New York, and I'd always wanted to do stand-up. The first time I had seen George Carlin live, it kind of changed my life. I, I was very shy about doing an open mic. Finally, I just booked one, and I invited a lot of people, so I couldn't. <laughs> you know, back out and, uh, and it went quite well. So, um, you know, we, uh, we went ahead and, uh, I started doing open mics and performing around the city. And within a year and a half, I was able to quit my day job. So I got oh. lucky. Oh, excellent. Well, luck counts, they say. <laughs> yes, sir. It does. So when did your serious, um, radio show start? That began uh, in 2015 on a channel called the Insight Channel, which was sort of like a uh, sort of like um, NPR with jokes. Mm -hmm. And um, we moved on to um, the Progress Channel a few months ago, which is a more political channel. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse and asked me to come over and do evenings. So we launched that in November, and my first guest was Pete Townsend, and mm -hmm. uh, my second guest was Dan Rather, and <laughs> it was very auspicious, and now I'm doing it from my home every night in quarantine. <laughs> We're able to broadcast still, and so I've had, you know, it's been mm -hmm. interesting in the quarantine. I've had guests ranging from David Crosby to Marianne Williamson to Tommy mm -hmm. Chong to Jane Lynch, and uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a nice thing to do, and radio has allowed me to do you know, acting work and stand-up and tours and uh, cable news stuff and films. And so uh, I'm very grateful for it. The last um, election tour, four years ago, you did a, you were a part of the sexy liberal comedy tour. Yes. <laughs> and then that's been kind of disrupted by the coronavirus. Yeah, that's uh, Stephanie Miller, the radio host. And uh, she and I have done this tour off and on for, uh, oh, eight years or so with a bunch of other comedians. And we've had everybody from Lily Tomlin to to Rob Reiner, to Nancy Pelosi, join us on stage. And um, yeah, I was planning this whole year around the election. <laughs> my, my whole plan was to make all my money on the road this year. So <laughs> it's been, uh, I was doing two tours and working on a third. So it's it's been a very interesting year. Yes, a lot of comedians, um, especially those who depend on their touring, seem to be somewhat adrift, actually. It's a scary time for a yeah. lot of people. So Sexy Liberal is a satire show. What What's your ideas about satire? Like, how do you approach politics, religion, current events? Well, I think satire is a, a very abused word in our language, okay. to tell you the truth. You know, I, when, I grew up thinking that parody is when you make fun of something. Um, satire is when you make fun of something by defending your target. You know, we don't have a lot of real satire in America. Most of our satire, I find, is an animation. You know, the Colbert Report show was, was satire. Uh, Mr. Show on HBO was satire. Mm -hmm. Generally, mm -hmm. I think other countries understand satire better than ours. Uh, I, I get dismayed when I see, like, you know, any kind of political humor is now called satire in our right. culture. And uh, that's not really true. So I think it's it's very misunderstood. And satire can easily be mistaken for sarcasm as well. But, you know, satire is always the kind where you point out the flaws in something by, you know, defending it. Like, if I'm doing a Trump show... If I'm doing a show about Trump and I realize there's a lot of Trump supporters in the audience, I've learned the way to do it and still do my regular act. Instead of saying Donald Trump is horrible, I'll come out and say Donald Trump is the greatest president of all time and here's why. And you defend the actual thing you're lampooning. So um, I'm a big fan of satire. It's very rare to see it pulled off in American culture. Mm. The death of Stalin. Uh, it was a great example of a recent satire. Um, Armando Iannucci's a brilliant writer. He did Veep, which is a great mm -hmm. live-action satire. Right. You know, it never comes out and just, like, makes things two-dimensional. And uh, I'm a real fan of the art form. Yeah, the original sort of Greek approach, which you use the word lampooning, is kind of, uh, you know, re reducto ad absurdum. So to take the position and then exaggerate it, but you kind of have to take the position first. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Exactly. You have to take the position and then blow it up to show its absurdity, which Colbert was very good at doing mm -hmm. on his Comedy Central show. And that's how you make the point by instead of like lampooning it. And with good satire, 
there'll always be some people who don't get the joke and think you're being straight. You know, with Colbert, there are a lot of conservative people, uh, at least I read there always were, yeah. who never realized the show was making fun of uh, George Bush and Republican culture. Well, yeah, there were studies done while the show was on uh, by media studies analysts that showed that if the more conservative a person was watching the Colbert show, the more likely they were to, they would they might laugh along, but they would also think that he meant it. Like, they didn't see the irony. Exactly. So the book I'm writing is about uh, religious satire, and you have a particularly uh, interesting upbringing. Could you uh, summarize what your upbringing is like? Sure, yeah. Um, I have a curiously Catholic upbringing. My, my mother was a nun. Mm-hmm. She grew up in the South and um, went into uh, the convent right after high school. Okay. She, um, the convent put her through nursing school and sent her off to Africa to work with lepers and then a jungle in the hospitals of Malawi. My father was mm-hmm. a Franciscan brother. He grew up in Brooklyn. He wore the robes and the, the rope belt and walked amongst the people like the lost Jedi <laughs> of Flatbush. And um, so my father uh, met this nun in um, in a holy family hospital in Brooklyn. This nurse fell madly in love, carried a torch for a good 10 years, and finally got her to leave. So <laughs> I was raised Catholic, but um, progressive Mm-hmm. free-thinking Catholic, which is a very curious way to live. And uh, it makes a lot of sense when you get older. But mm-hmm. we were always the most liberal house politically and the most Catholic house uh, spiritually. We were mm-hmm. church every Sunday and holy days, grace at every meal. My parents were very conservative socially. Mm-hmm. They didn't want us to be Republicans, but they sure did dress us like Republicans. So um, it was uh, a kind of a spiritually confusing upbringing to be both the most liberal and the most <laughs> Christian family <laughs> on the block and in my school. Um, now, of course, I'm older and I've read the Bible, and it makes <laughs> perfect sense to me. Uh, but back then, of course, and even now in America, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to put it all together. Well, indeed, uh, you seem to spend a large percentage of your life on Twitter calling out um, I mean, I don't want to make broad generalizations, but I see a lot of tweets about Trump supporters who support him from a Christian angle, and you often call that out. Well, you know, I don't know how I don't know if it's a lot of time on Twitter. I try to not be on Twitter too much. I, I think those sort of things can suck you in and keep you there for good. Right. With Twitter, I try to go there, drop my content, and get out uh, mm-hmm. as quick as I can because it's easy to get you know sucked mm-hmm. into it. And it can be entertaining. It makes a good search engine, but. You know, I don't claim to be a great Christian. I just have reached a point where um, I became resentful of uh, people claiming to be the same religion as, as, as Christ, people claiming to be Christ followers, claiming to be the religion of my parents and using Christianity as cover for a lot of very unchristian acts and policies of cruelty, of exclusion, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in the era of Trump. Yeah, I, I, I realized uh, I will call it out. When you vote for a guy who promises to bring back torture, who mm-hmm. promises to make the rich richer and the poor poorer, a guy who says that he will turn away war refugees, you know, you're mm-hmm. allowed to call yourself whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But if you're, you know, my, my challenge to all Trump supporters is always please name uh, one specific teaching of Christ, just mm-hmm. one from the Gospels that Donald Trump campaigned on or has ever fought for legislatively. Uh, just one, just one. Mm-hmm. And it's been uh, three years, Jerry, and I haven't had one yet. You know, Jesus, uh, I don't claim to be a great Christian, but Jesus did teach me the joy of calling out hypocrites. And it's at a point now where um, I, I really just couldn't play dumb about it anymore. We sort of have this culture in Christianity where they have managed to do something incredible. They have gotten uh, a certain segment of the population to mm-hmm. reject everything Jesus ever talked about. By, and to vote against everything Jesus ever talked about by talking about abortion, which Jesus has never talked about. Mm-hmm. And in my lifetime, I have been at a, had a front row seat to the transformation of American Christianity to a party, to a, a political group, to, a, to a, mm-hmm. an organization, a club that is devoted beyond anything to ending women's reproductive rights, which the Bible does not prohibit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible is not anti-abortion in any way, although Jesus was against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. He overturns eye for an eye in Sermon on the Mount. But they have managed to use the promise of criminalizing abortion rights, which I assume means incarcerating women and doctors mm-hmm. when they get their way. And that is not Christianity. Now, that's not to say that Jesus would be uh, a supporter of terminating pregnancies. My whole point has been you don't get to call yourself Christian when you vote against everything Jesus ever talked about and pretend abortion is what he actually talked about. 
That to me is blasphemy. It's a desecration of mm-hmm. uh, the gospel teachings. And as someone who put in his time uh, in the Catholic Church and has <laughs> spent a lot of time with the New Testament, um, I, I get depressed at how cynical and easy it is for politicians to manipulate people to do decidedly unchristian things. And, you know, uh, when I hear phrases like sanctuary cities, Christianity is supposed to be a sanctuary city. And in Matthew 25, Jesus lays out his marching orders that you have to be kind. And he calls on individuals and nations, not just people, individuals and nations in the parable of the goats and sheep to uh, be kind to the poor, take care of the sick and be kind to those in prison. Repeatedly, the Bible admonishes us to be kind to immigrants. And if you need to know what's wrong with conservative Christianity in America, I think all you need to do is look at the way the Christian refugees at our border Mm -hmm. from Mexico and Central America are treated by those who most loudly claim to be Christians. You mentioned um, hypocrisy. I I think just to to circle back around to satire, sure. it seems like religious satire should or often does uh, focus on hypocrisy, like rather than believers are stupid. But yeah, rather, I don't say that's like the lazy atheist line. I don't right. say that at all. Yeah. Right. So how 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 do we focus on um, hypocrisy? You know, as a way of creating humor. Well, for me, it's easy. I mean, it's funny when trolls uh, accuse me of attacking Christians. I've never in my life attacked Christians. I just like to mock hypocrites. And um, for me, when you claim to be an adherent of a reality, of of a religion that is devoted to kindness and empathy and love Mm -hmm. and compassion and forgiveness, and then use that religious name Mm -hmm. merely as a a cloaking device, just a cover, so you can be as mean as you want, but you're Mm -hmm. against abortion, so you have virtue no matter what you do or say. Mm You know, false piety is always the easiest thing to call out. Jesus himself did it. Mm-hmm. You know, when when the Pharisees came to him and said, uh, hey, your your supporters are, you know, not observing the Sabbath properly. Your apostles were uh, walking through the fields on the Sabbath. So, you know, uh, you don't really care. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, oh, really? Do you kill your children when they're disobedient? Like, Leviticus commands, because you don't do that either, do you? Like even Jesus called out the religious conservative bosses of his day for, you know, talking a good game on one thing, but then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, only adhering to the Bible when it was convenient. The, the, the way that gay people have been treated mm-hmm. by so-called Christians is maybe a greater example than anything. There is no part of the Bible that, and actually I, I credit the LGBT movement with me really having an awakening spiritually, because there's no part of the Bible that anyone can credibly use Mm-hmm. to say that same-sex relationships are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, You know better than me. There's a few passages from um, what is called the Old Testament. Uh, there's a couple of anti-gay references of Paul and his letters, mm-hmm. although most of those are mistranslations or not actually about gay people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I, I, I reached a point as a young person where I knew that gay people were acceptable to scorn and despise. Like we have, we're, we're allowed to hate them, right? right? I mean, the Bible says it's okay to hate them. They're bad. And when I got older, um, I was a teenager and I worked in theater and suddenly had a lot of gay friends mm-hmm. and I realized I couldn't reconcile myself with this. Do I have to leave my religion? Jesus taught me to love and I love these people, but the Bible also tells me that I'm, I'm, that they're sinners and going to hell and that they're evil. And I had a lot of spiritual confusion over it. And there's lots mm-hmm. of people who, who quit Christianity outright over, over that issue. When I was in college, I went to the NYU Catholic Center, which openly welcomed gay parishioners. And I remember bringing my parents to mass there, and they were so delighted to be in in this kind of community. (laughs) They had never been in a church that celebrated the gay parishioners. Because my parents were in the clergy. Of course they knew gay people. You know how many gay priests there are? My mother knew so many. So, (laughs) And as I got older and began getting away from the church, but actually learning more about theology, learning more about how the Bible was written— Uh, And actually reading the passages that are used to justify it, the overwhelming, despicable hypocrisy of people who just want to use Christianity as an excuse to be cruel to people while reveling in their own piety, it really changed me. And it really made me determined to use humor to -hmm. call out this kind of hypocrisy and and meanness. So, like, I've never been anti any religion. You could be uh, anti-violence and anti-Hamas but not hate Islam. Right. You know, you can be anti a caste system uh, and not be anti Hindu. So for me, it, it was really just um, an important step in my journey. And I began realizing as a political comedian, I wanted to bring religion into it. And mm-hmm. when I was younger, Bill Maher had me on to debate Jerry Falwell and 
to debate David Duke. Mm -hmm. And um, when my mother gave me permission to mention that she had been a nun and talk about her past, that opened up a lot of me creatively. And I, I really began talking about religion. Gets me in a lot of trouble, but you know, I Mm -hmm. don't hear anybody expressing my point of view. If you watch TV, you see right-wing fundamentalists and you see atheists and that's it. You, you see non-believers and you see cretins screaming at women outside clinics. And those are the two options we're given in this culture. So I I think the truth is much more layered. And I think there's a lot more, you know, they always say the largest growing religious group in America are Mormons. I think the largest growing group in America are people who were raised religious and now consider themselves spiritual. That that, um, category uh, that you just described is kind of put under the umbrella jargon of the nuns, not uh, as your mother, but as the N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. The none of the aboveers. Yeah. That's a very diverse group that is not all like atheists and agnostics. It includes people who moved into the place you just described. Correct. And, and you know, there's plenty of people out there, I mean, who uh, don't subscribe to any, organi- any organized religion, who don't, you know, kiss the ring of any of God's many unauthorized <laughs> fan clubs, but they still have the spiritual yearning. They still have, right. they still believe in something. They might not believe that God is an old white Caucasian male with a giant beard right. um, and, and, you know, displacement anger issues, but they still have a spiritual <laughs> yearning. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. And I don't think a belief, a belief in science precludes any kind of spiritual life whatsoever. Right. I think we've been given a lot of false binary choices by this culture that just aren't true. Right. Well, you can be Christian, but you can't believe in science. So you can be a believer, but you can't like gay people, you know, and, right. and it's it's all rubbish. I mean, right. you know, Jesus's whole thing was being a revolutionary. That's kind of what got him killed. He right. he challenged, he did challenge Old Testament law, you know, like the reason you Christians can eat bacon is because Jesus was a revolutionary. Well, they, they like to point out this, uh, not a line of, of the Old Testament will 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 pass away until it's all accomplished. But, you know, you have to believe that Jesus did come to fulfill the law. They say that you still follow the Old Testament law because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? He Mm -hmm. did challenge Old Testament law on divorce. Uh, He Mm -hmm. called Moses hard-hearted on divorce, Mm -hmm. on the death penalty multiple times. He stopped executions, you know, food Mm -hmm. purity. It was Jesus who said man's not defiled by what goes into his mouth, but what comes out of it. On Sabbath observance, Jesus reduced the Ten Commandments to two. Uh, He Mm -hmm. was a complete revolutionary, and it is what got him killed. It's always the revolutionaries that we admire. It's always the revolutionaries that the status Mm -hmm. quo kills, whether it's Gandhi or Dr. King Mm -hmm. or Malcolm X or Edgar Evers or John Lennon or Anwar Sadat. Uh, or Isaac Rabin, and all the faiths. It is the brave person who is trying to change things and make the world better mm-hmm. that the status quo eliminates. And Jesus is uh, just one in many of that long, long tradition. So uh, the older I got, the more I admired Jesus as a, uh, as a figure and as an activist and as a, a mm-hmm. spiritual teacher. And, and to me, I, I kind of feel like when I got out of the church and started understanding Jesus, my spiritual life got a lot deeper. One of the um, observations, and I'm sort of investigating this, so I don't know that I have a, a completely fully formed thought, but I'd like to just hear your opinion of my half-baked idea of the book I'm writing. This is like a central theme of the book I'm writing, is that the uh, post-September 11th uh, zeitgeist includes a change in religious satire of some kind. You Tell me how. I think the there's definitely... Like case studies where you can identify some comedians who took up the same charge that uh, people like, um, you know, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens were, were part of sort of that uh, moment. Oh, so, yeah. So Bill sure. Maher's yeah. the most famous, but there are other examples, maybe Ricky Lots Gervais uh, and yeah. many others. So I'm trying to sort of dig down into this, I don't know, uh, this moment in history where along with the development of what was called new atheism, although none of the writers themselves ever called it that, includes a new atheism style of religious satire. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, Bill Maher's movie is very good about that. Um, But, you know, the problem that I have frequently with with, uh, atheism comedy Mm-hmm. And I believe in atheists. I love atheists, and I believe in atheists, and I do a lot of atheism events. Uh, I'm always honored to be invited. But um, I've had this conversation with Bill many times where yeah. I say, you know, when you say that religion really uh, is, is this destructive force of, of uh, colonialism and putting down women and gay people mm-hmm. and, and oppression, you're actually talking about the fundamentalist wings of every religion. And this is my, my, my issue where I defend faith and religion and spirituality. The overwhelming majority— of moderate and liberal 
mm-hmm. Christians, Muslims, and Jews are getting along just fine right now. And that doesn't get the clicks. That doesn't get the eyeballs. That doesn't get the ratings. The majority of religious people getting along is not interesting to okay. our media culture. Right. It is always the fundamentalists, the mm. extreme religious conservatives of mm. every faith that right. ruin every faith and keep life so interesting for the rest of us. To me, Jerry, further extreme conservative you get in your religion, the more you have in common with all other religions. I'm, I'm working on a, on a thesis about the traits that fundamentalists share because I find okay. like there's five or six traits that it doesn't matter if you're Hindu or, or Zoroastrian or, or Buddhist or, or Christian, right. Jewish, Muslim, the, the more right-wing your religious conviction is, the more you have the same things in common, okay? Jewish, mm. Christian, Muslim. A, uh, women are inferior. The more conservative your religion is, the more women are a second-class citizen. That's certainly true of the Bible. My God, parts of the Bible are like <laughs> the gospel according to Ike Turner. Right. Jesus is the biggest feminist in the Bible when you when you actually look at how he treated people. So women are second-class citizens. Uh, gay, bad. The more conservative your religion is, the more homophobic it is, and the more misogynist it is. Sex, mm. in general, is icky. The more conservative your religion is, the more mm. any kind of non-procreative sex is condemned. Violence is okay if my side does it. Think okay. about the most ultra-conservative Christians, Jewish, and Muslims. Violence is cool on my side. And finally, uh, other religions are okay, but mine is superior. There's also a, a sixth element, uh, a penchant for, for victimhood, uh, always okay. feeling like you're the victim all the time. Right. So these, these six traits, I find, mm. are a religion unto itself. Fundamentalism is its own religion. It is the right-wing cancer that ruins all religions, that justifies cruelty, discrimination, injustice, and violence. It's usually by those in power who are convincing other people, you have got to go along with this. Whenever you meet someone who hates religion, they don't hate religious people. They don't hate Gandhi. They don't hate Bishop Tutu. They don't hate Martin Luther King. They hate the fundamentalists, the mean people who use piety as a cloaking device for cruelty. Let me ask you one or two more questions and we'll crawl towards a finish soon. One thing I'd just like to ask as a, you know, an experienced, you know, uh, writer and performer, what kind of advice would you give about satire, like to a beginner, if you saw someone at an open mic and they were sort of clumsily trying some political or religious satire, and I know it's all hypothetical, but what would be your advice to someone to on how to do satire well? It's got to be funny first. It, you know, it, it, your point is not as important as the laugh you get. And if you're up there trying to make brilliant points, but it's not funny, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how prescient and brilliant you are. <laughs> if you have the greatest line, the most brilliant wisdom, the most irrefutable <laughs> truth of all time, undeniable wisdom and brilliance in your act, but it's not funny, it doesn't matter. You have right. to cut every line. You're there to entertain. And it's when people try to be you know, propagandists that the comedy part dies. And then that you see all the time when, you know, people just, I mean, the biggest threats to, to comedy are just having therapy on stage or <laughs> doing propaganda and pretending that it's satire. And it's not. I mean, attacking your targets is propaganda. Defending okay. your targets is satire. And, and I can't tell you how many times I see really smart people doing really smart political stuff. All that's missing is the funny bits. Hey, well, that seems like a great line to end on. So let me say thank you, John, for coming out and uh, doing this interview with me. Well, I'm so honored, Jerry. I I thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for all you do. And I do hope that, uh, thank you for letting me reschedule so many times. You wouldn't believe how crazy life can be when you're all locked up at home. Yeah. uh, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to talk with you. When the uh, quasi-quarantine started, I thought, oh, this will be a good time to get some interviews done because people will just be sitting at home. And somehow people's schedules became more complicated. (laughs) It's really true, especially if they have kids. But (laughs) we're we're here in New York in the epicenter, and uh, it's been a very, very surreal time. So it's a pleasure to take a break from all that and talk to you. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed that. I was really moved by his idea that true satire takes the position it seeks to critique and make fun of and then finds comedy by defending the belief in an exaggerated manner. Didn't come up in our conversation. Reminded me, when I thought about it later, of John Oliver's Church of the Perpetual Exemption. Perfect example of that approach to satire, in my opinion. Uh, John's background with his parents and his journey into his uh, personal understanding of the life and ideas of Jesus, very fascinating. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Before we wrap up, a few last things. 
Remember to like us on whatever platform you're listening, and be sure to share us with your friends, get the word out of this project, uh, what we're working on. If you have any comments or questions, or if you find a news article worth ranting about, please email it to me at comicalheathen at gmail.com. I'll also have that in the description of this podcast. And I want to thank Mark Bell. Mark Bell is playing the beautiful Bach organ music you hear. Uh, Mark travels the world playing in the world's most famous churches. He has a CD out of Bach organ music, and he's given me permission to use it as the theme music. So thank you, Mark. And if you like organ music, please look for Mark uh, online or look for a CD. I will add that, in a meaningless coincidence, Mark is actually currently based in Salt Lake City. I don't think he has any Mormon connections, but I think that uh, there's beautiful churches <laughs> there, and it's a good place to work out of for him. I'd like to thank my very good friend, Jeff Geddert. He's an audio engineer who gives me advice on producing this podcast. If this podcast sounds in any way or fashion good, it's due to his help. If there's any deficiencies or problems in the audio, that's 100% on me. Uh, Jeff also is a writing partner who contributes to the writing of this podcast, so thank you very much, Jeff. One more time, thank you, John Fuglesang, for allowing me to interview and being my interview guest. I really appreciate you uh, supporting my project. And thank you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the podcast, and you deserve a great big thank you. Uh, I've been your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. See you next time. Got to be fucking kidding me. They are cutting grass outside my office, which has to happen, so that's fine. But the gentleman with this big mowing lawn mower, riding lawnmower, has just stopped outside my window. He's not even mowing. I don't know, is he checking his phone? Right in the middle of this recording. Wow. I'm timing this, like 60 seconds have gone by, 90 seconds have gone by, and he's just literally parked outside my window. I'm sure he doesn't know I'm in here. I mean, he's not being like a, a dick, he just doesn't know, but it has to happen, like this is me, right in the middle of my recording. Jesus Christ. <laughs>